Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home, if not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on Rolex.org. Last summer in the UK was hot, really hot. Breaking news, and the UK is experiencing its hottest ever day after the Met Office issued a red extreme heat warning in an area stretching between London, Manchester and York. But even those who like to top up their tans are reluctant to step outside, and that's not normal. We're from Denmark. For me, too hot. (laughs) This is crazy. (laughs) Nor were the devastating floods that saw large areas of Pakistan enter a state of emergency. The head of the UN is urging the world to come to Pakistan's aid in an urgent cash appeal. Our climate has changed in the past. Fossils from the Cretaceous period show the Earth was much warmer than it is today. And we've also experienced ice ages too. But it's only since the Industrial Revolution that there's been changes that have been driven by humans. So to what extent are these increases in extreme weather down to climate change? And importantly, can we change the course that we're on? We can see that if we continue down this road, then it's bad news for future generations. It's bad news for this generation too. So we need to use that understanding, that privilege that comes from what we've done in the past to walk a better route. If we get this next bit right, the future for humanity could be very bright indeed. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Today, I'm meeting with a man who's spent his career taking readings from extreme environments around the world to better understand how our climate is changing. In this episode, we're in the Times' studios in London. If you've never been in a studio before, I would liken it to what you'd imagine a spaceship control room looks like, fit with what seems like an absurd amount of buttons and faders. In other words, a world away from the everyday life of explorer and scientist Tom Matthews, who joins me today. He sat opposite me behind a large Times-branded microphone. So I'm Tom Matthews, climate scientist at King's College London, also a National Geographic explorer and supported by Rolex. It's fair to say that we should all have an interest in climate change. But for Tom, the societal impacts that severe weather events bring is what drives his work to understand the planet's most extreme climates. From mountain windstorms in the coldest regions of the Earth to deadly tropical heat waves, his research maps the limits of Earth's climate and charts its course as it's shifted by human-caused climate change. But before we hear more on why Tom's work is crucial to the future of our planet, I first tackled some common ground on a topic of conversation which arguably all British people share collective interest in. The weather! I asked Tom if he was surprised about the heat waves that the UK's experienced in recent summers including the 40-degree milestone that was reached in July 2022. 
Well, yeah, it was certainly something to behold. And actually, if I'm honest, I was very disappointed I wasn't in the country when it happened. I was in the Andes. I wasn't too surprised. Uh, 40 degrees has been possible for some time. And, you know, that possibility or the probability goes up with each year that we wait now because temperatures have been warming and will continue to warm. Um, so whilst 40 degrees was surprising, it was about one and a half degrees higher than the previous record. It's been on the horizon for some time and we have to get more used to those temperatures. It reminds us of the challenges that that are ahead. So no, not surprised. Uh, Concerned to see some of the impacts and some of the impacts were quite nebulous and far-reaching. I know supermarkets had problems delivering certain products because of damage to their freezers and that kind of thing, you know, and it should point our our gaze, if you like, or our focus in the the direction of those challenges that are are forthcoming. Mm. You, you mentioned sort of there, you know, as a climate scientist, wasn't it to an extent that surprising? Did you have a kind of like emotional response to it? I did, yes. I mean, 40 degrees, it did seem particularly significant. But to give you an idea of why I say it wasn't so surprising, we use, in climate science, we use weather forecasting models sometimes to see what's possible, not, not what happened or what's going to happen. Because weather forecasting models, we often use them to see what's going to happen the next few days. Do I need to take an umbrella out today? Do, should I plan a barbecue for the weekend? Weather forecasting models are very special though because what they do is they give us not just what's going to happen if you let them run they also give you plausible future states that might never materialize Mm. but because of weather forecasting models using the laws of physics to work out what's going on they are plausible futures possible futures Mm. and if you just allow them to run and then look at what they produced you get a sense of what was possible in a given climate state and we know for example that 40 degrees has been hit many many times in these free-running climate models for the present but also of the relatively recent past so let's say a decade or more than a decade ago these weather forecasting models were saying 40 degrees was possible. So it wasn't a surprise in that sense. We knew physically that 40 degrees was possible for the UK climate. But emotionally, of course, it seems different. That's interesting. And, and we, we were talking there about a British example. I wondered, you know, there's obviously been some real striking mm. extreme weather events in recent years and elsewhere around the world, heat waves mm. in China, some mm. even by Australia standards, some of the wildfires mm. have been quite shocking. Wildfires in the Arctic, mm. you know, obviously the floods in Pakistan last mm. year which sort of became Mm. politically significant as well because that fed into the climate talks. Absolutely. I wondered, you know, would you say you were shocked by those or again, was that kind of what you would have expected? So the emotional response is one of shock, but the scientific response is not one of shock at all, unfortunately. It's entirely consistent with what we expect. In the UK, for example, when we encounter 40 degrees, it's significant for us, yes, but I would hazard a guess that billions worldwide experience 40 degrees each year. When we get into places that are already kind of at the leading leading edge of the climate envelope, the hottest places on Earth already, they start to encounter temperatures and conditions that are not just locally significant, but are actually societally significant. We are, you know, treading into new territory for humanity. And that's, of course, really concerning. There are already impacts. I mean, I'm focusing on heat because that's kind of my background in terms of extreme weather and societal impacts. But in terms of heat, the impact already in places like Pakistan, elsewhere in South Asia, parts of East Asia, they're already very significant. There are many deaths each year, and I'm being vague because we don't know how many deaths, because heat can be the cause of the death, but not necessarily appearing on the death certificate. You may be dying of a heart attack, for example. Um, So heat's already very significant in these places. And if we're interested in sort of future impacts, what we normally look at is threshold exceedances, exceedances of heat thresholds, and that heat threshold is tied to 
some kind of physiological change that occurs. So the heat goes from being, you know, something that you, that's perhaps affecting what you're doing to being dangerous. And in places that are already hot, they see the greatest sensitivity to those threshold crossings as warming progresses because they spend a large fraction of their time already close to that threshold. So a bit of warming then pushes a large number of days across that threshold. But yeah, it's really a concern. And we see mm. these headlines of, I mean, it's not just the heat, but the mm. precipitation, the, yeah. the floods in Pakistan. And we hear those impacts in these places that are already on the edge of our climate envelope. It's really concerning. And, and sort of bringing it back to basics, you obviously mentioned climate change there. Just mm. just explain for people why these extreme events are happening, what's driving them. Yeah, so fundamentally it's, it's mostly greenhouse gas emissions and the building up of, in particular, CO2 in the atmosphere. So the planet's storing energy and most of that energy is going into warming the oceans. And some is going into warming, and warming the atmosphere and making it more humid, adding water vapour to the atmosphere. And the simplest consequence of that are, one, heat waves become more common and more intense and also precipitation events so rainfall events the heavy events become heavier because essentially the atmosphere you can think of it a simple way of understanding is it it empties all the moisture over a given location in a heavy in a heavy storm and warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture about seven percent per degree of warming so when the atmosphere empties all of its moisture the amount of rain that's falling goes up by about seven percent So that's entirely consistent with an atmosphere that is getting warmer because energy is being stored in the Earth system. I want to come on to, in a second, Tom, what sort of has driven you in your your Mm. life and your career. I just wanted to ask a little Mm. bit, just first of all, before we move on to that, just, you know, it used to be that, you know, going back sort of more than a decade, there was a general kind of feeling that you couldn't pin any one extreme weather event on climate change. And obviously Mm. that's still the case. However, Mm. what has moved on a lot, as I understand, is this sort of field of attribution mm. science of where we can say how much more probable mm-hmm. an event. Do you want to explain to people what that means better than I've just done? Yeah, no, I think well, that was a, I was very impressed at your understanding of that <laughs> of that field, actually. So indeed, yeah, we have, um, we have a problem attributing any one particular extreme event to climate change because essentially the weather that you get every day is a, is a roll of the dice. And you can think of the states of climate systems controlling essentially how the dice are set up, the numbers on the dice. And then the weather you get any one particular day is a random role. So this is an interesting point that I think wider society don't necessarily need to have an appreciation of this fact, that we could have some really extreme weather, like the 40 degrees that we described. That was possible on any day in the summer, I would say, or at least in the middle of the summer, during the past decade. We just mm. got lucky, if you like, that we didn't have that particular roll of the dice. And last year, we had that roll of the dice that gave, that gave us a 40. So you get this randomness in the weather. So what we do is try and work out how climate change may have contributed to a particular extreme is we roll the dice lots of times in different climate settings, if you like. So representative of climate of the past, when there are fewer greenhouse gases or lower concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, roll lots of dice. Look at the, for example, the extreme temperatures that come out. Do it again now, roll the dice many times and look to see how much more frequent the particular extreme temperature or let's say extreme precipitation value is and what we compare to the past and then the increase in frequency we would attribute to the change in the climate state which in this case is you know higher greenhouse gas concentrations Mm -hmm. now and rather than rolling the dice we're running climate models so we run them lots of times and compare the output essentially but there are i mean an interesting thing to consider is there are some other types of extremes that we can can attribute to climate change in a more straightforward way for example if you had a glacier lake outburst flood somewhere 
It may be that the lake has only formed as a consequence of the glacier retreat that has occurred as a function of climate change. So there are these other events that perhaps we can pin on climate change more concretely. And your other point was basically you were effectively saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. that, that you know, you, what you do is effectively run... Mm-hmm simulations of the world with and without climate change basically and and what you see the the difference you see there is effectively absolutely how much you can say that's it it's termed as the the factual the world we have versus the counterfactual the world without us can compare the two states have you always been interested in the weather and science? Is it a new, you know, how, how far back does it go, your interest? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's not often I actually reflect on this. I think the interest in weather does go back a, a long way. I remember thunderstorms as a kid, and, you know, small child, some of the earliest memories being incredibly exciting, a little bit frightening too. And I think those two things, you know, were, were melded together and had quite a strong emotional reaction to them. I think these were big events. And, you know, I remember the excitement on a, a summer's eve evening when you could feel how warm and humid the air was and you could see I think it's a swallow circulating I mean I'm not sure there's any, actually anything to that but my dad used to say that was you know they knew the thunder was coming so there, there is this you know a long a long history of being interested in the weather during I suppose growing up that sort of it broadened a bit and it was an interest in the environment the outdoors essentially start off as, as forests and then whatever and I came into contact with kind of new environments mountains the ocean the, these were again environments that just I found them very very interesting and mm. I suppose what became more unusual as I went through university was I, I started to get really interested in how they worked more than just seeing them they, they seemed to align these two things mm. um, was it sort of like eureka epiphany moment where you're like that we made you sort of example you can give of that I went to university in the Midlands of England, about as far away from the sea as you, as you could get. But I remember then developing an interest in surfing. I tried to really, really get into it. And I remember at one point being more interested in how you could work out the height of the breaking wave to expect rather than how to actually surf. And I, I wasn't sure that reflected my lack of balance or a kind of a slightly nerdy tendency. But I do remember that and talking to my friend who I was with. And he's, I just remember him thinking it was a bit odd, the, the interest I had in, in, in how high the wave <laughs> should be based on the depth of no i i still have a surfboard in my mum's place though and she's okay. keen for me to get rid of that soon um <laughs> so i dropped it after the limited forays during university yeah and then what would you say your sort of first kind of awareness obviously weather and climate are not the same thing what was, mm. what was your sort of first awareness of climate change my undergraduate degree was in geography so you know we were something we would cover and that was back in uh, 2005, my university journey started. And I think probably where I, I first saw the impacts of climate change, which is a different level, I think, was going to glaciated environments in northern Sweden as part of undergraduate work and then ultimately PhD field work. I mean, you, you just you see it there. Glaciers, and this is why they continue to hold big things in my research field, only also my personal interest is in the mountains. They are very important systems because you see the impacts of climate change very, very clearly. It's laid down in the landscape. So long-term climate change, you climb over the moraines on the way to, to, to glaciers. So you'll climb over these moraines and some of them will mark the date of glaciers as they extended during the Little Ice Age. We're talking hundreds of years ago. And I think that's quite special to have this, you know, this dynamic thing, the glacier, that responds so clearly to the climate and leaves such a visible mark. Mm. And, you know, in, in the UK, for example, our, our our hills or our mountains they are dotted with moraines from during the last glacial period so you know they they tell us very clearly about how variable climate is over human time scales if you go back to areas that that have glaciers in now so you go i mean closest to us is scandinavia or the alps then you can see climate change playing out in real time unfortunately over the course of a decade 
especially if you go somewhere like Iceland, it's got some of the fastest responding glaciers in the world. Mm. You see not just the, the changes laid out in the landscape, you see the ice front move. Mm. And that's really shocking. Yeah. You know, you think this ice has been here for a very, very long time, certainly since the last glacial uh, across the Alps. And well, let's say, we can pretty much say that for, for any region worldwide. Yeah, yeah. But for some of these places like the Alps, the warming that we're expecting might completely get rid of some of yeah. the glaciers that are there. That's quite something. There are other changes going on in the climate system that are as profound, that we get to certain warming levels, they are gone. But in the context of glaciers, there's something that we, certainly if you, if you grow up in a region where they're not too far away, you see them. And yeah. people often have this special connection with them. There's something very uh, very troubling about seeing them go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost it's that sort of visibility, isn't it? And uh, as you say, the human timescales, I'm going to um, France's... Mm biggest glacier and they've mm. this amazing sort of record oh, yeah. where the steps of they've gradually had to build the steps further and further they've got like uh, absolutely plates in the wall where they've had to build the steps further uh, uh, down. absolutely you, you can yeah. see it you know around for example the everest everest base camp on the kumbu you can see the trim line for where the glacier used to be and base camp now because it's on the glacier is about i think it's almost 100 meters lower now than it was in 53 when the first first position went up so it's really yeah you see it Mm-mm. and um I mean, your work has involved a lot of tracking weather data. I mean, I'm putting that very simply mm-hmm. there. But when did you first feel the yearning to get involved with that? So yeah. actually that started during the PhD. So my PhD was looking at glacier climate interactions. The big challenge in the field was that we lacked observations to actually, you know, sort of know in fine detail what's going on at the glacier surface. So and what that really means is how much energy is there? How warm is it? How humid is it? How fast the wind's blowing? The sunshine and the, we call the long wave radiation coming in. How much energy is there available at these really local scales on glacier surfaces to melt the ice? So my PhD was in that field and I spent a long time in northern Sweden on a very famous glacier called Storglaciaren, a large glacier, uh, is what it translates to. It's actually very small by global standards, but it's big by Swedish standards. I put up a weather station there as part of the PhD and I would do something that I don't get the chance to do anymore, a few people would do, which is tend to that weather station on a daily basis. But that was the first dalliance with really field measurements and appreciating the need for them. And it continues to this day. I've dropped in and out of that sort of research field, doing other things related to extreme weather and, and climate. And as of 2018, I launched strongly back into that. From Sweden to, mm. I think you've been to Everest not once mm. but twice. Twice, yeah. What was your drive to go there on a personal level, but also on a scientific level? So, yeah, I mean, the, and the, the drive did exist in, in both realms, I would say. So first, how I got involved in the Everest expedition was that I was awarded a grant by National Geographic to go and work, um, to put weather stations up in Ladakh in India. And I'd been there on a personal trip. I'd been to Ladakh to run a half marathon. I think it's one of the highest altitude half marathons in the world. So I went there for fun, really. And as has been the case more than once, having gone somewhere for fun, I then very much saw that there was an opportunity to do and a need to to do work there. In Ladakh, there are communities that depend very directly on the runoff from glaciers because they have dry summers and the the glaciers melt during the summer. So that's where the water comes from. And then if you need water during the summer and you're in a dry environment, then you do need something like that. You either need a great supply of groundwater or you need need glacier runoff to sustain you. And the glaciers are going backwards quite quickly. So, you know, in places like that, we really do need to know what the future holds in terms of how big the glaciers are going to be. 
And also how the climate will vary in other ways, how mm. much precipitation to expect at certain times of the year in the future, in order to know whether, you know, the long-term solution here might be that some communities might have to leave. It's as big as that will relocate. You know, it's so trying to find out really at the sharp end what's what's going on. Mm. So National Geographic um, awarded me a grant to go and put some weather stations up there. And that meant I was kind of in their orbit for... Uh, a, a, a year or so later, I think, when uh, there was there were plans being laid to, to go to Mount Everest to launch a, a big expedition to understand the state and help inform understanding of the fate of Everest, which sits at the heart of the Himalayan water tower. So that was an opportunity that presented itself, and I was extremely excited to, to be part of that. Um, one, because I've always been fascinated in the mountains, and Mount Everest, of course, it holds you know special sway over anyone that has that sort of interest as the highest mountain on Earth. But secondly, scientifically, I knew that there were very, very few weather stations in the world, altitudes you know above sort of 5,000 metres, and certainly weighs nothing above 6,000 metres. And the opportunity to go out there and, and find out what's going on, to tap this virgin terrain for weather observations was incredibly exciting. You know, it's, it's like being able to map a part of the world for the first time. Um, you know, we know the lowest point on Earth very well. The Marianas Trench have been there several times, been to the highest point on, on the Earth many times, measured its height. But the weather, we can think of as almost like a secret terrain that we can't see. You can measure the height of the temperature field, as it were, so how warm or cold it is. And same with the other parameters. Hmm. So it's like being able to shine a light in this new spot to sample for the first time the weather on the, you know, the roof of the world. In a more broad sense, mm. you know, the observational data or you know weather data you're mm. collecting in quite extreme environments mm. around the earth you know i can see how that'd be of interest to you mm. know you mm. um given your field so can you just explain for people listening you know why does that matter how does it help us you know yeah understand big issues like climate change better? Uh, uh, it's a very good question um, because it's not easy to go to these places. Um, there's a lot of expense. So the natural question is, is why? You know, we can't just be kind of satisfying the curiosity of, of a slightly nerdy climate scientist who wants to find out how cold it is on a high mountain. But if we think of glaciers as being a case in point, they've really been the motivator to go and install the weather stations in, in the Himalaya, in, in the Andes, trying to understand the future of those ice stores under different warming scenarios these and i've already said stores there i said ice but we like to say water stores and that's why society should be interested in their in their future glaciers are as i alluded to in the context of ladakh act as a reliable source of fresh water for communities downstream they're reliable because when it doesn't rain and it's dry and perhaps hot where do you get your water from? You're exposed to uh, water shortage if you don't have something to compensate during those dry and, and hot periods. And glacier catchments are blessed with this reliable source of, of fresh water. When it rains, you have that water feeding through the river system. Uh, when it doesn't and it's warm and hot, you have the glaciers melting to sustain uh, the water supply downstream. There are lots of people worldwide that live in river basins that have glaciers within them. It's something like 2 billion people. It's an awful lot. Now, of course, all the water that those 2 billion people get does not come from the glaciers, but some does, by definition. So the future of those ice stores, those glaciers, matters to billions of people worldwide. And actually, it matters to all of us, because what do you do if the place that you live no longer has enough water to sustain you throughout the year? Well, maybe you lobby the relevant people to make sure infrastructure is built to more reliably store and release water so that you're okay, you adapt. Mm. But what if there are limits to adaptation and you can't really stay put? 
it affects everyone. But well before that, there's disruption to food supply, to energy security, etc. Yeah, the movement of water is very important. So it's very much a human it's story. A glo- exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a global story. story. Not something abstract that exactly. happens off in pieces of exactly. ice. Yeah, and yeah. there can be really specific things that we need to know. For example, the difference between well, the warming level we have now and one degree, what that means for glaciers depends in part on what the current conditions are. If you're having all of your precipitation fall in this particular part of the glacier and it's minus 10 and you increase by one degree, you've just got slightly warmer snow and maybe a bit more snow. But if it's falling around zero degrees and you warm by one degree, if it's close to this threshold where you transition between snow and rain, now you don't have snow anymore, you have rain. And that's fundamentally bad for the glacier's health. You don't get input anymore, so snowfall. You now get something that actually increases the melting and leads to what we call negative glacier or more negative yeah. glacier mass balance. So the baseline matters. So measuring just the current state of the weather is an important part of understanding what happens next. We're in London talking to the climate scientist and National Geographic explorer, Tom Matthews. Tom has made it clear that the weather stations being installed in the highest peaks of the world play a crucial role to help us better understand the impacts that climate change is having, locally and globally. The meteorological data captured ranges from temperatures, precipitation, humidity, radiation to snow depth. Monitoring the weather at these elevations helps scientists model how climate change might unfold in the future. And Tom's explorations across Everest in 2019 and Nevada Ozangati in 2022 as part of the National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Amazon expedition are a glowing example of how weather stations and the observations that come from them not only give scientists a better understanding on climate change, but help governments to make more informed decisions on the future of our planet. The National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Amazon expedition is a multi-year exploration of the Amazon River Basin from the Andes to the Atlantic. The 2019 expedition to Mount Everest was the most comprehensive single scientific expedition to be carried out in this region. The expedition aimed to improve our understanding of the impacts of climate change on mountain systems, the effects on the billion people who live downstream, and the solutions needed to ensure the survival of high mountain ecosystems and the people who rely on them. To date, the expedition has yielded impressive results and scientific discoveries, including proof of the elusive palace's cat inhabiting the mountains, signs of rapid glacier melt, and the highest ever recorded sample of microplastics. It also resulted in the installation of five weather stations, including the two highest in the world at the time. And Tom's most recent expedition to the highest peak in southern Peru, Nevada Orzangati, was just as outstanding. I asked Tom to tell me more about why it was an important project to be involved in. That was a really nice adventure. And I was with some great collaborators. And the idea there was to go and understand what's going on in this part of the Peruvian Andes, an area that um, gets a lot of its snow on these mountain peaks, actually from the Amazon basin, um, which is really interesting from how things work perspective. Because, you know, if you just take your mind to this snowy peak, we're at 6,400-ish metres at the summit of Alcangate. It's, it's very cold. And I remember being extremely cold up there, actually. Colder there... I felt colder for about 10, 10 degrees, 20 degrees warmer than on Everest. It was a really difficult climb for me personally, actually, Alison Gatte. Not so well acclimatised and maybe the previous expedition to Everest. Physically, had, had, mentally, had, what, physically it, was, it, was, um, it was harder than it should have been, considering that we'd been to Everest recently and, and that had felt, by comparison, quite easy. So we're at 6,400 odd metres. It's cold. 
snow's glistening, it's very bright. Um, the snowflakes that you're treading on, where they come from, they've come from most probable, we're still trying to work out how much has come, but a good fraction has come from the steaming Amazon basin. So it's evaporated from the soil that the trees are growing in, then maybe some of it's precipitated back onto the canopy and then it's gone up in these enormous thunderclouds. And at some point it's been transported away from the Amazon basin and it's ascended the slopes of the Andes and, it, and it's dropped there. So that's where we're getting most of the snow from, this part of, of the Andean catchment. And why that's interesting from a science point of view is what happens as moisture fluxes from the Amazon change in perhaps response to deforestation or perhaps just continued climate change that leads to dieback in the Amazon. The Amazon's really interesting and very worrying Earth system component when we think about human interaction or human effects. Because if we do things like start to cut down trees or continue cutting down trees, we are cutting down many. The climate can dry because the trees recycle moisture. So they take water up from the ground and then push it out through their leaves, it evaporates and then that falls as precipitation. If you remove the trees, it gets drier. The trees require that moisture in order to grow. So you can have this unfortunate positive feedback, not positive because it's good, but positive because the initial change sparks another change that amplifies the first change. So the, removing the trees makes it drier. You can have trees dying off, that makes it drier and so, and so on. And what we're interested in with our Sangate there is, well... What's the weather like in the upper reaches of these, these Andean glaciers, these Andean catchments? Where exactly is the snow coming from? How much is coming from the Amazon? So how much of it would be at risk if we were to lose more of the Amazon? And also kind of how, how, just how warm is it? How windy is it? So we know how much energy there is to move that snow onward. It all matters for water security for the people living in these Andean catchments. That's really, that's really interesting. Just... Um We've been talking mm. about sort of glaciers in mm. in the Andes and in Asia, you know, and mm. uh, we've been talking about the Himalayas as well. I know this is a question that you could probably do a whole podcast mm. on its own, but can mm. you just talk about how glaciers sort of globally have changed? The short version is they've gone backwards. They've, they've retreated. There are a few exceptions worldwide, but they are very few. Glaciers have gone back very fast. And a really sad summary is that they lag behind the current climate. So that means, for example, if we just to hold warming steady now and not have any more, we could still expect to lose something like, average worldwide, about 40% of the glacier area that you see. So just for convenience and a bit pessimistic, you can cut in half the extent of all the glaciers you see worldwide and say, well, that's about where they where they're stop. Not quite that bad, but almost that bad. And you, know, you talked about how your work's important because it, you know, helps us understand things like how much fresh water people have mm. in certain parts of the world in the future. I just wondered if you could maybe give an example or two of how your work has maybe helped people in different parts of the world. Yeah, it's a good, good question. So, I mean, broadly, I suppose where it's most, it, it's a small drop in a big ocean, but where that ocean is most significant is in informing policymakers. So ultimately what happens is our research, the Climate Science Network or, or the research community, we publish our results, and those results are synthesised during the write-ups of these IPCC reports that ultimately inform... This is, this is the UN Climate Science exactly, Panel. Exactly, yeah. that ultimately inform policymakers worldwide on how urgent the need is to reduce our emissions or to limit warming to certain levels. And that, that changes you know, the way that we, that we move forward. So my work's a very small drop in that big ocean, but ultimately that's probably the most significant ocean to talk about that's the climate science right. ocean i mean more locally the the the, um, the weather data that we have 
do facilitate things like improved weather forecasts in the mountains too. And the likes of Everest, that can be very significant. There's some, uh, something like 20 to 25% of the deaths that occur on Mount Everest. Bad weather plays a part. So being able to reduce that risk is something that we're already able, able to do with the improved forecasts we can now deliver with, with that network. Yeah. What are some of the sort of you know, resources and fun, you know, funding you need for this? You mentioned it's not easy to get to some of these places. Can you just give us sort of sense yes. of what's involved yeah so the the resources are very substantial if you want to go to the highest mountains in the world so everest for example we're talking big money to get there and that has precluded for a long time the type of science we've been able to do with the help of national geographic and rolex actually because it's risky science for the, the normal funding councils to support There's a, there is a very high chance that you're not going to be able to install the weather stations because things happen on mountaineer expeditions you can't guarantee you're going to get to the summit of a particular mountain and that might be very desirable for a, a research council to you know to support with a high chance of nothing but the likes of engaging storytelling science community like National Geographic and Rolex. Mm. The journey is actually part of, it's an output in itself. And that's incredibly important because a problem we've had for a very long time is that we've known the situation, you know, the climate's warming. We know that the problems that that poses for society are really severe because almost everything we do is in some way coupled to the climate. And it only feels like stuff has started to change in wider society very recently. And that's not because the climate science has got to a point where now it's clear. It's been clear for a long time. The gap was in communication. And so any opportunity I see to improve communication, to be given a a platform to stand on and show just some of the simple changes that are ongoing, I think is we really as as scientists should be taking that opportunity. It's it's been a huge privilege to have that platform the National Geographic and Rolex have provided to, to do that. So Rolex has this Perpetual Planet Initiative. Why is that important to not just your work, but, you know, environmental experts and researchers elsewhere in the world as well? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of what they're doing. They're bringing together really big communities of people that wouldn't normally get the opportunity to work with each other to better understand these kind of critical earth system components, the, the mountains, the oceans and the rainforests. And the network they bring together you know, it it encourages new ways of looking at things and they are engaging or supporting risky field science too. So they're they're completely novel in that way. You know, research councils will, of course, provide support to go and do, you know, well-contained scientific expeditions that will hopefully deliver some, some data that will help answer a particular research question. The likes of what Rolex and National Geographic are doing is a bit more nebulous. They're saying we want to better understand these systems and they're bringing together broader groups of people to go and try and comprehensively take the pulse of this particular critical climate element. It's game-changing to have that expeditionary support. So looking forwards a bit, what are your hopes for your research and the impacts it can have on us having a much better understanding of climate change? I do see a lot of value in the outreach part of my work because I'm often aware that, you know, the kind of two scales that we operate at, one the scientists, you're really at that kind of cutting edge of your discipline. There'll be very specific questions that you're asking. But with what we know, we're not making the most of it, I, I would say, in the sense that the urgency isn't necessarily well understood by everyone by the public by policymakers alike for example there are warming amounts and if we cross them parts of the world become too hot for the human body doesn't matter how how young and fit you are how much water you've got if you stay outside 
and you can't retreat somewhere cooler, you can't, you can't ingest cold water, for example, then you will eventually overheat and die. We don't, we don't meet those, don't have those conditions anywhere on Earth yet, but we will if we warm enough. So I think the clarity of that message isn't necessarily getting out there enough. So there's, there's much more that we could do there. So just simple improving, improving that, that gap, I suppose, mm-hmm. is, um, is high on my agenda. And, and when you're not out in the field, Tom, you're, you know, you can be found lecturing at King's College in London. How are you finding that and how important is it to you? You talked to them about a minute ago about communication. How important is it educating the next generation on all this stuff? Absolutely. It is, I think, really important to, you know, part of that outreach, if you like, it is talking to the people that are going to be living in a world and actually playing leadership roles too. So I see a lot of responsibility in making sure they are as as best equipped as possible to help navigate this challenging future world that they're going to, they're going to inhabit. We're already in in a challenging world, if you like, in the context of environmental change that we're, we've seen a pace of change that's almost unprecedented in human history. And it's only going to become increasingly unprecedented in human history these are very challenging conditions and we need people in geography in particular the department that i i work in we need people that well understand the physical kind of underpinnings the basics of what's going on but also what we can do about these changes the adaptations that we can we can make how to deal with the threat of more frequent extreme floods how to deal with more frequent extreme heat waves so bringing those two things together the physical and the social that's what's special about geography departments in particular I enjoy lecturing in one whereby the students are getting that grounding and i think it, there's a really big responsibility on us to make sure they are as, as well equipped as possible to go out into the world we have to have an awareness i think an appreciation that climate change alone stopping that or limiting that isn't going to cure the problems from extreme weather they're not going anywhere and i think in that sense we should you know be increasingly reminded that we're not adapted to now we don't deal with extreme weather now as well as we could so just every bit as important as trying to limit warming i think it's also important to consolidate around this point of adaptation working better to deal with the hazards that are currently here because in some parts of the world we're you know we're not so good at, at, at dealing with the threat of hurricanes extreme flooding yeah. etc and just to make that point the climate change alone is not going you know limiting warming doesn't deal with all that by itself we, we need to adapt too because we yeah. weren't adapted to the past we're not adapted to now yeah and just the the emphasis you know the onus to, to do that just only accelerates with even time. setting aside climate change exactly. for climate that, change that, to come we need to be better that, at adapting that, that, and being more it. resilient exactly. to extreme weather that's it. so i think we need to be yeah. nuanced but clear with the messaging around yeah. climate change that's a challenge i find in myself communicating it and i think it's a community we have and you, you talked earlier about sort of quite shocking declines we've had in glaciers globally mm. and you know if you want to look at the sort of big picture you know we're on like about 1.2 degrees of mm-hmm. warming since the industrial revolution driven by our activities and carbon emissions are mm. still rising our targets 1.5 degrees we're rubbing up pretty close to that what are the reasons for hope especially you know for younger generations Yes, I mean, it's easy to lose kind of, you know, lose the hope in all of this. Firstly, I think we should be a little less hard on ourselves as humans, if you like, in that, you know, we are a species that has transformed the earth a lot. And yes, we're now in a position where we realise by carrying on burning the fires of, of the past, we will lead to conditions that are the detriment to us and the other things that we share the, the planet with. That alone, though, is an incredible achievement to realise that what we're doing, we cannot continue. You know, no species 
in, that we know of anywhere has ever faced this kind of realisation, has ever had the capacity to face this kind of realisation. When photosynthesis evolved on Earth, it changed the composition of the atmosphere, in this case reduced the amount of CO2 and put more oxygen into the atmosphere, a fundamental change that affected everything else living on Earth. Now, the photosynthesizing organisms didn't know what they were doing, but they caused mass, <laughs> mass die-off. We are doing something similar in a way in that we found a new way of generating energy that has been fantastic for doing things like increasing life expectancy worldwide, increasing the, if you like, the development and well-being of human societies worldwide, albeit very unequal, lots of problems with it. But globally, life expectancy has gone up. And You're talking about fossil fuels here. Fossil fuels, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the detriment, of course, the yeah. most straightforward consequence is we increase the greenhouse gas concentration of the atmosphere, it warms the planet. And a kind of an irony is that we only know about what's coming next and we can't keep doing this because of what we've done. We wouldn't have had the supercomputers mm. most likely if we hadn't done that. So whilst we often focus on the fact that we're not doing enough, I think we just need to, to, to be a little less hard on ourselves that narrative. Humanity isn't terrible because we're in this position would be my starting point. Now looking forward, we have a choice to make. We are going to have to put the interests of others that are perhaps not yet born or perhaps there are those that don't have the strongest voice at the table now. We're going to have to put those interests first if we want to increase long-term well-being of human civilization. Now, that's now very clear. We can see that if we continue down this road, then it's bad news for future generations. It's bad news for this generation too. So we need to use that understanding, that privilege that comes from what we've done in the past to walk a better route for humanity. And I think we are capable of doing that. So using this real crossroads to embark with urgency in the, in the right direction. And I see lots of positive signs that we are doing that. We are now not looking towards those really, really bad warming scenarios we thought were on the table even a decade ago. So we are bending that curve. And that's a tremendous endorsement of the positive side of human nature, that we do care about others. We do care about the future. So cut ourselves some slack in terms of our awareness has improved massively Absolutely. and also the progress on renewables, two big reasons for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. The narrative, yeah. I think, is important because yeah. we could recognise that this is a huge opportunity. It's not the future generation, actually. They're, they're going to live with what we do. We're going to set the coastline for potentially thousands of years ahead. And the people making those decisions are not the children that are protesting. It is the people that are in powerful positions right now. And I think if we, if we get this next bit right, the future for humanity could be very bright indeed because we've crossed this critical threshold. You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, climate scientist and National Geographic explorer, Tom Matthews. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. The series producer is Anya Pierce, the production coordinator is Oliver Adamson, and the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on the Times Radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. 
Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org.